Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. This conversation was recorded from a webinar. The audio quality is somewhat compromised. Welcome again to our weekly Awaken Call. Today in conversation with Cynthia Lee. As an all-volunteer offering, each Awaken Call is a conversational space that is co-created by many invisible hands. In a few minutes, our moderator, Michael Lerner, will begin by engaging in an initial dialogue with our speaker, Cynthia Lee. And by the top of the hour, we'll roll into Q&A and a circle of sharing, where we invite all your reflections and questions. I've opened up the queue right now, so at any point, you can hit star six on your phone and you'll be prompted when it's your turn to speak. You can also email us at ask at servicebase.org. That's A-S-K at servicebase.org. Or submit a comment or question via the webcast form if you're listening online via the live webcast. Our moderator today is Michael Lerner. Michael is the president and co-founder of Commonweal, a 43-year-old nonprofit center in Bolinas, California. He is the co-founder of the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program, Healing Circles, Beyond Conventional Cancer Therapies, the New School at Commonwealth, and the Resilience Project. He taught at Yale and received a MacArthur Fellowship for contributions to public health. I'm privileged to have Michael as my boss, and I can honestly say that he is one of the most caring and heart-centered people I have ever met, and is a person that's dearly needed in times like these. And I can't think of a better person to moderate this conversation with Cynthia Lee. So, Michael, without further ado, over to you. Thank you, Koza, so much. Uh, Welcome to the, I understand, almost 400 uh, awakened partners and colleagues on this call from around the world. And, Mm. Koza, I want to thank you for the extraordinary contribution you're making to our Beyond Conventional Cancer Therapies website, bcct.ngo where you are a senior staff and just a, a, a really wonderful colleague and friend. Thank you, Michael. So it is, it is a great honor for me uh, to uh, moderate this call with Cynthia Lee, MD. Cynthia is a physician, author, and speaker. Her first calling was to underserved uh, communities working with HIV patients at Kaiser, San Francisco General, St. Anthony's Medical Clinic for the Homeless, and Doctors Without Borders in China. Then she developed an autoimmune condition that took her down a different path, which she describes in her extraordinary new memoir, Brave New Medicine, A Doctor's Unconventional Path to Healing Her Autoimmune Illness. She was also recently featured on Kelly Turner's Radical Remission series. And most recently, she is the author of a free ebook. How to Shield Yourself Against COVID-19. And we will get to the ebook in the last uh, third of uh, this uh, conversation. Currently, she has a private practice in integrative and functional medicine. She serves as faculty for the Healer's Art program at UCSF Medical School. And she became interested in evolutionary biology, ancestral health, functional medicine, and the art of intuition on her own personal journey. I've known Cynthia for 20 years. She's been deeply involved with Commonweal's work in environmental health, uh, with healing circles, 
and with the healer's art, which uh, began at Commonweal. So with that, Cynthia, could you start by describing uh, something of the story that you tell in Brave New Medicine? Sure, absolutely. I mean, first I just want to say what an honor it is to um, share this time and space with everyone um, where you know, there's just been a tremendous coming together globally. Um, we can feel it right here in Berkeley, California. And uh, so it just feels incredibly timely to have this conversation this morning. Um, briefly, I just want to go into my childhood, like the forces that shaped me to go into medicine because I was really sort of the unlikely child of four to immigrant parents from China um, to go into medicine. I was deeply sensitive and uh, actually I would say, you know, a lot of fear. I had a lot of fear um, in me as a young child. Um, the world as it was uh, sort of scared me and startled me. So um, I was born um, uh, into a, a very loving and evangelical family. My, um, my parents were deeply involved and had founded uh, the church that we grew up in. And so we sort of grew up, you know, I was not a pastor's kid, but I was uh, very much sort of in that role. Um, and we were in, uh, in the heartland of Texas at a time when there were very few um, uh, minorities of, of any sort. So it was, um, it was a, a time where I felt um, a sense of not belonging, um, yet simultaneously being able to see a lot of love around me. So there was a, there was a disconnect, um, which I ended up internalizing. Um, I saw a lot of um, and heard a lot of messages around heaven and hell, right? So that this notion that most of the people around me that I saw in school or uh, in my neighborhood or on the playgrounds were going to go to hell uh, terrified me. And so uh, in some uh, you know, hard and soft way, it began to shape my internal um, life. And what really pushed me to go into medicine was this uh, deep desire to alleviate suffering. Um, but, you know, sort of hidden below that was a desire to save my family, right? There was a lot of ancestral trauma from wars and, uh, and just the very authoritarian culture that uh, my parents, my grandparents, and, uh, and other ancestors grew up in. Um, and, you know, and as a young kid, this you know, your family represents the world. So I sort of carried this with me, this, um, this uh, you know, well-meaning but misdirected uh, calling to try to save the world. Um, so one thread that I do talk about as well in my book is uh, this thread of invis this sense of invisibility. Um, where I grew up in Texas, there was not uh, overt racism, uh, but it was soft. It was I was just kind of invisible. Uh, you know, I didn't have very many friends when I was coming of age. Um, no one was interested in dating me. I was just I was a nice Chinese girl. Um, and then also I was number two um, in the Chinese culture. We're really addressed by our birth order, and I was number two, and I was the number two girl. You know, in a in a culture that favored uh, males over females, and so. Um, I was often trying to find who I was. And so all of these forces uh, were shaping in and continuing to shape in me as I went through medical school. Um, and I went um, 
to, you know, my top choice of schools in Dallas, Texas, at University of Texas. And um, that was really the place I found this sense of pride, uh, my first sense of belonging, that I was part of this lineage that was noble. And, um, and everything there was, was very clear in terms of the science. So I felt like at that point I had left um, this black and white paradigm that I was raised in, uh, in terms of who was going to be saved and who was not. Uh, but that the, um, I had shifted really to the mind, to knowledge, as far as, uh, you know, where I would find answers and solace. Then after um, medical school, and I will say very, a br- very brief note, I had a very formative um, relationship, uh, a love, in my first deep, deep love uh, with a, form, uh, a classmate of mine in medical school, and we were together for almost six years. And um, when I was in my medical training, um, he died in a car accident, and that was Kurt. And so it was a time where the questions around the human condition were looming incredibly large, even as I was uh, learning how to treat and comfort patients. Um, so the, the memoir, uh, Brave New Medicine, is, you know, really at the heart of it. It's a love story. It's a, it's a medical memoir that's really a love story. And um, so Kurt is a, is a thread uh, throughout the book. Um, but, you know, after medical school I, um, and after Kurt's death, I really wanted to start fresh. And that's when I moved to San Francisco and began Life in the Big World. Um, I met my now husband, David, a couple of years um, after my move, and we were traveling the world. And I would say that this was the time um, that you know, I was really at the height of my life, um, as I knew it then, that uh, both personally I felt this freedom and, um, and a playfulness that I hadn't had pretty much for my whole life. And then uh, work-wise, uh, you know, as Michael had um, said at the introduction, I was a public health doctor working with underserved communities, and I felt a very strong sense of purpose and resonance with, uh, with what I was doing um, in the world. So, uh, you know, it was at this height that um, shortly after I got pregnant and had um, two children, so within the span of a couple of years, that I began to um, to have health challenges, and they really manifested initially as an autoimmune thyroid condition um, called Hashimoto's, which is you know very very common. Millions of people um, have it, and uh, but then after the um, the birth of my second child was when uh, when the real health crisis hit um, with a a near-death experience when I was in Beijing. I was visiting family there, and I emerged in the uh, emergency room, you know, to a body that I just didn't recognize. So that was the beginning of um, chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, something called dysautonomia, where the autonomic nervous system that controls really vital and uh, automatic functions in the body you know, like breathing, body temperature, uh, heart rate, blood pressure, was just in a very, very 
um, unsynchronized uh, rhythms. So uh, this really left me with, uh, with two years of being housebound and about 10 years of being largely housebound, which was really the beginning of a new journey. Uh, Michael, did you want me to go on? Or? Yes, please do, uh, Cynthia. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, let me just first start by saying that uh, Brave New Medicine is a really extraordinary memoir, uh, which is uh, circulating widely, and I, I commend it to everyone. Um, is there anything else you want to uh, mention about the memoir before we go on beyond it? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that the uh, the you know the primary uh, journey, the learning journey, was you know I, I my physical body broke down. I came to this place where I um, I first off didn't know how to treat these conditions, right? So there was the, there was the the medical piece that um, yeah I did not know what to do, and specialists did not know what to do. Um, but then there was this existential piece as well, um, because I, as an internist, right, a specialist in chronic conditions, I actually hadn't believed these conditions to be real. Um, so there was this, uh, this deep uh, struggle within me to make sense of what was going on. And so, you know, the, the book really details my stepwise journey um, out of this hole. And... Um, uh, you know, and I, I go through all sorts of cutting-edge science to, uh, you know, from epigenetics and microbiome, ancestral eating and cooking, um, neuroplasticity. So all these fundamental ways in which the body and the mind um, are affected by what we eat and think and drink and breathe and do, uh, which, you know, slowly I began to piece things together. The other... Um, you know, uh, the, what I ended up coming to as far as a, a medical paradigm was integrative medicine, which a lot of people have heard of, which is, you know, a lot of lifestyle medicine, but how that impacts the healing capacity of the body, uh, but also functional medicine, which is uh, less uh, heard of in terms of a, a terminology, but it's uh, really looking at the root causes of disease. So beyond uh, lifestyle, um, you know, are there hidden infections? Are there hidden allergens? Um, are there uh, pollutants, you know, that my body has absorbed? And how, if so, how do we detox? So um, it's, you know, both of these paradigms are really ways into systems thinking. So beyond, going beyond the reduction of science and into um, looking, the bo- looking at the body as an ecosystem. Um, the other thread, um, you know, beyond the science of medicine, I also uh, very, very reluctantly fell into the need <laughs> for uh, developing my intuition um, because suddenly I went from no answers um, in, con- in the conventional paradigm to infinite numbers of possibilities in this larger paradigm. So that developing my intuition was uh, not only an introduction into this realm of mystery, uh, you know, which I had fought for so long, you know, most of my life, this spiritual or mystical um, Dimension, but also uh, it was just a, I was looking at it very pragmatically. How do I learn to hone in on what the the better or the right um, prescription might be for me? So those are the the two big threads as far as the the initial story goes. So from uh, 
a really strong training in internal medicine and uh, the science of medicine as it's understood uh, through your uh, illness into integrative medicine and then functional medicine and then intuitive medicine. And particularly intuitive medicine really being a, a very striking experience because it goes so far beyond uh, what people can more readily understand uh, with uh, complementary medicine, with with integrative and uh, functional medicine. Uh, so the story is a very complicated uh, one that um, really is best understood in depth in the memoir. Uh, the 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 book, the memoir, came out uh, last fall, um, and the story ended, I believe, what two and a half years ago? Is that about right? Yeah, the narrative of that yeah of that book ended about two right. two and a half years ago. Yeah. So, uh, what has happened in the two and a half years? Did the did the healing journey end at that point, or did it continue? Well, <laughs> you know, life continues. the The story in the book ends, um, but life continues, and I actually allude to it a little bit at the end of my book. Um, when I was in the final weeks of submitting the very, very final manuscript to my publisher, um, I had a second health crisis, and um, and I had to table the the manuscript for several months uh, before I finally submitted the the final piece. And so I tried to weave in some elements of um, what had happened at that point, um, but not enough time had had passed to where I fully understood what was happening uh, in terms of the healing journey. And so what had happened in the second crisis, um, I won't go into the, the medical details um, because part of me is still a little bit, you know, there's so many elements of unknown, um, but my, uh, just suffice it to say, my stress, my hormonal and sort of neurological stress uh, systems collapsed, and um, so I was back, you know, bedbound for a few months. And uh, really, I would say it was kind of an extended near-death experience. From what I've read of near-death experiences, you know, I, I really felt like I was encountering this other realm, and um, and seeing very, very blatantly what it was that. I needed to do uh, if I were to stay, you know, alive in this life. And one thing I realized um, on that edge was that even though I had learned, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned that this was, this was a love story. I mean, the, the ultimate love story was just how to love myself. And um, I've, I learned at the second health crisis that I was, I had learned to love myself, but as long as I was slowly getting better. You know, I was kind of on this successful healing path. And so um, first off, you know, was just realizing, you know what, I want my life, I love my life the way that it is, you know, in my body with all its um, challenges, but, but I do want to live my life. And um, the second piece, which really came to me as a surprise, was, you know, after, God, almost like 30 years of, of uh, you know having nothing to do with organized religion um, at all was that at this edge 
what I found I wanted was to go into my childhood Bible. So it was uh, very, very surprising to me. And my parents had fortuitously moved from China to, uh, to the Bay Area. And so they had it. You know, they had it for me and they gave it to me. And so it was the first time I had gone back into my natal religion. And, uh, but with all the stuff that I had learned on my healing journey, it read like a completely different book. And so what I ended up doing was looking at all these stories of Jesus, right, who I had had memorized all those Bible stories, uh, but as a healer and as as a wisdom teacher. Um, so it really led me into uh, Christianity, but as through Christian mysticism, really looking at the Christ essence as opposed to, you know, one man um, changing humanity, and that I, you know, uh, the whole term of salvation was very different. So, but parallel to that, um, that deepening was. Uh, was deepening my Qigong practice. And I had been practicing, Qigong is a, a mind, body, or like a moving meditation, an embodied meditation um, practice that is the foundation of all martial arts. It's the foundation of traditional Chinese medicine. And, um, you know, with very few other alternatives, I was just forced to go deeper into that. I mean, it's, something, it's a practice you can do even lying down um, or sitting on the couch. So I, these were the two elements I dove very, very deeply into. And what I found over time, and again, this is the part that didn't you know, sort of make it into the, into the memoir, was not only had I healed then the traumas that I had around my evangelical upbringing and the, the, um, the misconceptions that I had about uh, you know, this dualistic paradigm, I also could see that, uh, that my conventional medical training was another dualistic paradigm. You know, that you either, you're either sick or you're not. You know, this drug either works for you or it doesn't. And it was very black and white, again, in that conventional medical training. So um, what happened as I deepened into my, uh, this you know, I would say the first crisis was really uh, an opening of the mind and that this one was more of an opening of the spirit, that um, the healing actually became so rapid that it would be classified as a radical healing. And I began to understand, you know, what these, quote, miracles were um, that, you know, were happening in all these stories that I had read as a kid in the Bible um, and understanding what it meant in terms of a physical body, you know, as being basically condensed energy and how do we tap into the source energy or what, you know, people, if personified, would call God. Um, so the, the, the really surprising piece was that when I was focused on that in my meditation, you know, whatever we want to call it, you know, the Christ energy, the source, chi, that the healing actually happened as a side effect. So it was, um, it was really something beyond scientific explanation. And what I realized then, too, was this whole notion of surrender, right? I mean, I, I certainly could not have done it. I thought I had surrendered the first time around. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until the second crisis that I realized even 
by diving into intuition and this realm of the mystery, I was still leading with my egoic mind or my analytical mind. Like I was kind of controlling the way in which I wanted it to manifest, you know. Um, I was also fighting the, the notion of what kind of doctor I wanted to be. You know, I, I just wanted my life to go back to the way it was. I wanted to be a public health doctor who learned a few more things on her journey. And at this point, I realized, whoa, like, I'm just, I'm just a different kind of healer, whether I like it or not. Um, so I, I learned then also to embrace my sensitivities. You know, I had, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this very, very sensitive nature, which I fought for most of my life because it was challenging to be in this fast-paced uh, world, being so sensitive. And so now learning to harness it as a gift, you know, um, that I can tune in to these subtle energies, this chi, this source energy, um, as a way to heal um, not only myself, but to learn then how to um, heal others by, um, by really tapping into my sensitive nature. Cynthia, could you give us an example? You spoke of intuitive medicine, and obviously for some of us that's something we've, we've thought a lot about. For others it will be new. But what is an example of your use of intuitive uh, medicine in your uh, practice with your patients? Hmm. Yeah, so, uh, the, so I will say the, the first piece is... Um, in terms of developing intuition, I didn't realize intuition was something that could be developed, um, like music or art. Uh, you know, some people are born gifted, uh, but then the rest of us can, no matter where we start, can really learn to develop it. Um, so in the beginning, I was developing it as a, you know, sort of as a skill. And I was uh, learning with a mentor of mine who's a medical intuitive, which is a very specific kind of application of intuition. Um, and her name is Martine Blochio. Um, she's Belgian and has lived in America for a long time. Uh, grew up in a family of, of doctors and nurses in the conventional setting. Um, but what also happened was when I deepened my Qigong practice, and dove deeper into the Christian uh, mystical uh, lineage was that the intuition actually developed further as a side effect. So it, again, it wasn't a targeted goal that my analytical mind wanted. It just happened. Um, and, and I realized, you know, maybe this is something that, you know, what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. Like, I'm somehow through this subtle energy realm tapping into this place where, uh, you know, I'm connecting with other people. So, for example, I mean, you asked about how do I apply it. Like if I'm sitting with a patient, or usually what happens is I sit in meditation before I see the patient and even before I see the patient's chart so that I'm starting off as unbiased and as open as possible to receiving information. Um, so, and again, this has taken years of development, so uh, it comes much more quickly now, but it, I just want to, you know, encourage listeners that, like, this doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I think for a very, very rare few it may, but it doesn't happen overnight, and it's just something to really, uh, that will come 
um, the further we uh, develop our contemplative practice and just make it a daily practice. So, um, yeah, often I will sit in openness and... um, and first, uh, the, the hardest lesson for me, particularly I think as a healer, but also, you know, as a caretaker, you know, I'm a, I've got a, you know, partner, I've got kids, um, I've got, you know, um, two sets of parents living near us that I'm taking care of, so sort of, and I've got, you know, pets. So I'm kind of used to being in this caretaker role, and it's much easier for me uh, and much more second nature to think of other people first. Um, so the challenge for me in my contemplative practice is to connect me with, you know, and, and the Ibn Arabi phrase, alone with the alone, uh, has been very powerful for me. So I'm just sitting alone with the alone, um, and that that is the ultimate source. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. With that beginning, then I um, I open it, you know, to the we'll just say the patient who's soon to come into my office, and um, and through the medical intuition training that I've had, I've just learned systematically to go through um, go through the body. You know, is there anything um, in the nervous system that really needs to be addressed in this patient? Is there anything in the digestive system? Or is it, you know, in the lymphatics? Is it in the heart? Is it in the lungs? And so um, this is where my analytical mind can really guide uh, and sort of shape, you know, this formless mystery of information. Um, And what I found is that I can, you know, in medicine, we're really good at ruling things out, you know, and most of the tests that we get, we're trying to rule out really bad things. Um, And what intuition has really helped me do is to hone in. I feel like I'm much more um, able to rule things in and, um, and therefore, you know, spare everyone lots of tests and lots of trauma around the tests and lots of anxiety. Um, and one of the hardest things, again, this is where the, the ego mind comes in, you know, and the contemplative practice is so key, is that when, when I sort of flip into the, um, the ego mind and it's about getting things right, you know, oh, I really want to be right. Like, I hope I'm right about this diagnosis or this treatment plan. That's generally when, um, you know, when I shut down the intuitive uh, potential. It's really about opening up and seeing what is true um, in the much broader sense than what is beyond my analytical mind wanting to be right, uh, even if it's for uh, good intention. And so, um, uh, and you know, just through my regular practice over several years now, I can feel that difference of where it's coming from much more readily. One of them has resistance and a little bit of anxiety, you know, hinging on being right, and the other one feels very open and very relaxed. And where where did you find your your guidance to develop your qigong practice? I, um, you know, I will say I was incredibly blessed on this journey to uh, to, to have mentors show up um, at critical times, and I mean, you, Michael, being one of the first, um, really opening me into this, um, 
you know, the, the deeper realm of soul healing and um, uh, healing and community as well. Um, one of the things that about, you know, chronic illness and particularly debilitating illnesses is, um, is that there's a lot of isolation. Um, and also being a doctor, I felt like I really needed to, to heal myself. Um, so um, I think, you know, part of it is being, again, just kind of being open to um, teachers. And, you know, and it doesn't have to be someone who's, you know, incredibly established or esteemed in a particular field. Um, you know, my children were incredible teachers to me, and they still, they continue to be, and they keep me honest. Um, they're the first ones to point out, oh, God, you know, I, you always have to be right. You know, and I, I, you know, oh, that's my ego mind. Like I need to just <laughs> take a little step back. And so with the, um, with my medical intuition teacher, Martine, as well as my Qigong teacher, Master Ming Tong Gu, um, he, uh, I met both of them, again, through friends um, who just suggested either to me or my husband, oh, you know what? Like she might really connect or you know connect with this person or find some avenue of healing with this person. It wasn't necessarily as a teacher. Um, with Master Ming Tong, uh, my Qigong teacher, it was my midwife who, um, again, you know, my children were were you know it had been several years since I had um, been in contact with Yeshi. Uh, her name is Yeshi Newman, and she's. Um, uh, a very, very, uh, she, she was, you know, just recently retired from midwifery and had gone into Qigong herself um, and studied with this teacher. So she reached back out for a totally different reason to me. And um, when we met up for tea, uh, she looked so vibrant. You know, I asked her kind of what was going on, and she told me about Qigong, and her teacher was going to do this workshop. So that was really how it began. And the, the gift of um, Master Ming Tong was that most of his uh, his lessons were online, so even when my health was really brittle, I could connect and do these lessons and do these practices guided, um, you know, with his direct guidance, uh, even from the comfort of my own home. Uh, one final question on this, because I want to get to your extraordinary uh, free ebook um, on COVID nineteen, but. Um, Given that uh, Qigong is widely practiced in China and elsewhere as a healing practice, actually there are two questions. One is, to make the kind of progress that you made, roughly how many hours a day do you practice? And the second is, have you had opportunity to see some of the healings that take place with Qigong firsthand? Mm. Yeah, so... Um, you know, I had been practicing Qigong um, even in the, the earlier parts of my healing journey, um, you know, the first part where it was a mind-body practice. And what I hadn't realized, again, until I went through it myself, was that I was, at that point, I was doing it about, um, you know, I started out literally 15 minutes a day from my couch um, and then gradually progressed and I'd say by six months, seven months, I was practicing about 30 minutes a day um, and then gradually made it 45 minutes a day. And I was, I was continuing to practice because I was seeing results. Um, you know, my, my vertigo was getting better. Um, uh, you know, my energy was slowly, slowly improving. 
um, and just little symptoms would go away. So I was sort of uh, unknowingly in a transactional mindset, right? Like I will do this as long as I'm getting results. And, you know, and that's kind of how I approached everything. I will stay on this elimination diet as long as I'm, you know, continuing to heal. Um, it wasn't until the second health crisis when I went deep into the spiritual awakening, uh, and it was the only thing I could do, that, uh, you know, again, it was, a, it was more of a craving. It was not a discipline. It was like I just wanted to connect to this, this um, formless realm. And it felt almost like going back into the womb. You know, there was this, this darkness to it, uh, amorphous uh, quality to it, but it was, um, it was peaceful. It was peaceful. It was not scary. Um, so I was, you know, I was practicing. You know, again, some of the practice might not mean that I was standing up and doing the formed practice, but I was um, connecting in some way, meditation or sometimes there are um, movements, meditations where you're just moving your hands, you know, in a way that's moving the chi, the way that, you know, you would create little waves with water. And so about three hours a day, I mean, there was very little else I could do. And um, because it's an embodied practice, and this is another piece that I learned through my journey, it's not about transcendence. So it's very different than transcendental meditation. It's actually about going into the discomfort and being with the discomfort. And that once we learn to accept it, that's actually when a lot of it uh, transforms. So it was learning to be in the suffering um, and to be with it simply as energy that was stuck or contracted in my body as opposed to labeling it as something, you know, is it fibromyalgia, you know, is it, um, you know, do I have a chronic infection, do I have all these other things causing inflammation, um, and it's not, it's beyond labeling good or bad, it's just energy that wants to move. So um, what I learned there was that it was it's an integrated practice of mind, body, spirit, which is different than integrative medicine, you know, where each of these pieces are different spokes on a wheel that contribute to healing. This is a, a, a practice when you go deep that it is uh, it's in the body. It's consciousness and uh, energy uh, together in the physical form so that what ends up happening, the physical form, the body, heals um, as a response to this energy. So, um, oh, and then what I've seen, so after you know, seven years of practice, uh, the last two being very, very deep, I finally attended my first um, Qigong workshop with my teacher in, outside of Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico, and it was a week long, and the energy there was completely different. You know, it's it's equivalent to like listening to music on the radio at home, you know, and dancing, right? So you're kind of doing your own thing, but feeling the energy and feeling the emotional stuff moving through versus going to like a rock concert, you know, or a symphony live. So there's this energy at, you know, at a live retreat that, um, that is very differ different than the energy of practicing at home. Um, and the more, you know, and since going to that, I can harness that energy much better in my practice at home. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, just as an example, I saw there was a woman that um, when I was on retreat, they actually asked me, um, you know, as a courtesy, if I could do a medical consult on her because she was so critically uh, unwell and they weren't sure if she should be on the retreat. And so, you know, advanced uh, Parkinson's came in in a wheelchair, had been wheelchair bound for um, about a year. And, um, and then by the end of that week, you know, she, uh, people were giving testimonials and she walked up uh, to the stage and walked up those stairs, you know, completely unassisted. And so, it, you know, and I had this moment where I was like, you know, my, my analytical mind really stepped in with some skepticism, like, whoa, this is the stuff that I see, you know, on TV that I think are fake healings. Um, and yet here I was really observing it, you know. And so the, the key, though, of course, is how do we take that home and continue the practice so the healing continues? And one thing that I always tell my patients, a lot of them get very frustrated. They say, well, change doesn't happen fast enough, you know, and I'm just exhausted. And, you know, I, always, I remind them actually that the change happens very quickly. It's solidifying the change and deepening that healing so it becomes a, you know, an entrenched pattern in the nervous system, in the way the hormones are communicating, in the way the gut is healed, that, um, you know, that is the piece that we often lose patience with. Um, and that, that requires habituation. So we could spend a lot more time on, on uh, each of these topics, but I do want to move now because it's so critically important to our listeners and really to everyone around the world uh, to your really extraordinary new ebook, uh, which, uh, which listeners can find at CynthiaLeeMD.com. That's CynthiaLeeMD.com. And it's called, uh, you can even go on now and follow us. It's called How to Shield Yourself Against COVID-19. And what I want to say here, because I've been involved with the study of integrative medicine for 40 years and studied cancer specifically for almost all of that time. And so I've become accustomed to the fact that conventional medicine simply misses enormous parts of what is beneficial uh, in its paradigm, which is enormously useful within its constraints. But I've become accustomed to the fact that that is the case. So here we are in this global pandemic, and what we're being told to do is self-isolate and social distance and wash your hands and all these useful fear-based things. Uh, but that's what we're told. What nobody says in, in mainstream, in what you hear, is that actually there is a lot that you can do for yourself. And that's what this extraordinary uh, ebook, How to Shield Yourself Against COVID-19, covers. And I wonder if you could uh, walk us through uh, some of the primary points about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, so this was a you know a 48-hour labor of love um, that came out from um, yeah from patients and family and friends and you know beyond asking like what what else can we do and um, you know the uh, there's a lot of uh, changing information and even controversial information that's out there um, but one thing that is uh, that is not debated at all is that 
the uh, the primary difference between those who uh, have mild to moderate uh, COVID-19 illness versus severe requiring hospitalization uh, is really the strength of the immune system, and you know, and sort of the the functioning status of the immune system. And so, this is really where um, integrative medicine and functional medicine um, step in. Uh, we, I mean, we've been you know, developing and researching and um, honing these these treatment strategies for years, you know, decades. And so I just felt like there was a tremendous um, capacity to, to fill in, uh, not just for uh, offering patients something to, you know, to reduce, uh, potentially prevent, right, infection at the outset, but also reduce the severity of illness. But really, in um, you know, in in hearing the stories from my, you know, my doctor colleagues who are in the hospitals, and the nightmare stories, it was really uh, this desire to offload the medical system, which is already overwhelmed. And how do we, you know, um, how do we keep people well enough so that they're not in the hospital for everyone's sake. Um, so that was, the, that was the seed for this. And um, what we know, so first of all, the, you know, I talk about the, this concept of two shields. So this outer shield is what we hear about in the media uh, and you know, through public health measures. And it's incredibly important. This physical distancing, you know, sanitizing, you know, almost to this point of being hypervigilant. Um, but, you know, this is a way not only do we reduce, uh, um, you know, contagiousness, but also, you know, this other piece about potential viral load at the time that you're exposed. So if you're uh, infected, you know, with, let's, let's just say, one droplet, you know, from somebody, um, and it's con- it contains some viruses in there, versus, you know, a big dose, um, let's say 10 droplets, uh, all with, you know, little bits of virus in there, um, that, you know, one can be significantly less uh, of a stress to the immune system. I mean, this is actually what vaccines do, right? Our, initially, vaccines were live, uh, largely live vaccines, uh, live pieces of virus or bacteria, and then, but just given in very, very small doses, um, not to overwhelm the immune system, but to develop immunity. So I just want to say this outer shield um, is incredibly important and seems to be working. Um, it's a little bit early to, to say definitively, but seems to be working um, in many places. Um, the, the second shield, though, is what, you know, what I call the inner shield, and that's really our individual immune systems. And... Um, that um, even for people who have been exposed, uh, been infected, right? So let's just say the average, um, the average time from infection to the, the development of symptoms is five days. And then the average time that someone then develops severe illness is about 12 days after uh, infection. So even you know, even for people who are not, uh, they're just like, you know, I'm not going to do any of these things uh, because it's, you know, it's a lot of work and I just want to live my life and I want to be in a place of non-vigilance, right, just to try to relax and not think about 
this pandemic is that if they were to develop uh, symptoms and they use that window of about a week, again, these are just averages, to then begin supporting their immune system, that's still a window in and of itself. And so some, some uh, I've been following a lot of webinars, I've been following um, you know, infectious disease and uh, pulmonary doctors on the front lines who are giving weekly updates or daily updates, sorry, um, and people are starting to ask that question. You know, what about quercetin? What about vitamin C? We want to know about vitamin D. We want to know, they're actually, and what about diet? So it's really the general population's um, questions that are driving mainstream doctors to begin looking into these alternatives at, at this place of crisis. Um, so there is a tremendous potential for awakening um, at this time uh, for the, the medical system. Um, and, you know, and I will say just a shout out to the, to the medical system. I had, you know, having been in integrative medicine for a long time and also largely seeing patients who've been dismissed by the, you know, mainstream uh, system, the, you know, I hear a lot of uh, just, um, you know, they tend to be criticisms of what the medical system is lacking. And um, I have had, you know, sort of a reawakened, just deep appreciation and awe for my, you know, doctor friends and colleagues who are really on the front lines, um, really, uh, you know, risking tremendous, uh, risking their lives, really, you know, to um, combat this, this pandemic. Um, and so, uh, so this, I feel like this book is, you know, is my small way of contributing to the, the larger picture of what's happening. Well, I want to say I hope every listener on this call uh, goes to CynthiaLeeMD.com, downloads this free book, looks at it yourself to see if it makes sense to you, uh, and then distributes it as widely as you possibly can. Because uh, I am a student of, you know, objective, science-based, science-informed work. And there are quite a few good uh, people out there who are offering different things like this. But this is so well written, uh, so kind of graphically easy, and it has things that, that other people don't have. So for example, uh, we may not have a lot of time to talk about it, but gargling. Um, you know, there, the, uh, Cynthia says, uh, Science on gargling is far from robust. This measure is simple, low cost, and low risk. Some preliminary studies suggest it may reduce or prevent upper respiratory uh, infections. Uh, and uh, another thing that I think is really key, super key, is that a lot of people think they should take immune-stimulating supplements. And Cynthia says, you know, be careful of, on this. Uh, because as I understand, Cynthia, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, uh, if you actually get the virus and, and get uh, the beginnings of a, a difficult case, the immune-stimulating supplements can uh, contribute to an inflammatory cascade, which is actually very problematic. Do I have that right or not? Yes, and um, I would, yeah, what, what we don't, okay, what we know about COVID pneumonia is that it looks like it is, the immune response to this virus that's creating this tremendous, uh, you know, destruction in the lungs, which is different than uh, like the flu 
um, you can have the viral flu pneumonia, but oftentimes, too, you get a secondary bacterial infection, which um, then actually makes it more treatable because there's antibiotics for that. So what we know with COVID pneumonia is it's largely, it's, I mean, it appears to be viral. Uh, and then there's this large inflammatory component, as you say, to it. Now, what we don't know is... Um, with the, you know, some of these supplements that are uh, sort of immune, quote, stimulating, is that can they increase or, or is there a risk that they're going to increase this inflammatory response that then becomes overwhelming? And I would say also um, there might be a, you know, slight sort of genetic predispositions to this, uh, you know, as there are with any kind of uh, auto-inflammatory or autoimmune um, condition but that um, it also has to do, again, with the strength of the immune system. Because the strength doesn't just mean it's, uh, it's high functioning. It means it's optimally functioning. You know? So people with autoimmune disease have high, highly revved up immune systems. I mean, it's overly revved up. Right? So that's not what we want either. We want something that's very strong so that it's functioning optimally, so that it's not tending towards this uh, inflammatory storm. And the other piece that goes along with that, which I include in the ebook, you know, different elements uh, of it is uh, calming the stress response. I mean, that's what makes this pandemic, you know, or any kind of, you know, big threat um, so, uh, so devastating is the fear and the anxiety and the stress. And what it does is it revs up our uh, hormone systems and our nervous systems. And so everything's on full alert and so is that going to contribute, you know, an increased risk for inflammatory responses? Absolutely. So really, how do we, um, how do we learn to dampen and, and regulate that response again so that we're not on all the time? Hmm. Uh, again, we, I'm sure there will be questions in five minutes when COZO um, begins to field the questions uh, for you. But in the last five minutes, I'd just like to kind of go back over the story. As I've heard you describe it, uh, you know, born into an immigrant uh, Chinese family, uh, grew up in Texas where um, you were very isolated um, uh, as a nice Chinese girl, as you, you put it, um, in your early years, um, sensitive um, person, sensitive little girl. Uh, and then uh, finding your way out into uh, medical school, discovering yourself, um, having this extraordinary love with Kurt, uh, and then uh, he died tragically in an auto accident. You came to San Francisco. You met your extraordinary husband, David, um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, had your children, and um, then... Uh, fell into this uh, deeply debilitating autoimmune uh, disease. Uh, and then out of that, needed to learn these brave new medicines, to use the title of your memoir, uh, Brave New Medicine, A Doctor's Unconventional Path to Healing Her Autoimmune Illness. And so it wasn't out of a desire to leave uh, conventional medicine. It was that the conventional medicine simply didn't have the answers. And so you began to go into integrative medicine and then functional medicine and then made the huge leap into intuitive medicine. Uh, and uh, then uh, 
had the second health crisis, which took you right to the edge of death. And there you rediscovered your uh, uh, natal uh, religion, but experiencing it in a completely new way. Uh, and uh, with that, um, began to move toward whatever one wants to call the Christ essence, and then uh, found that uh, through your Qigong practice, that, uh, that there was a way in which the Qi field and the Christ field, or whatever you want to call it, are really one, and that, um, that that further deepened your capacity to do the intuitive work uh, as you no longer saw these practices as transactional, but rather uh, uh, you wanted to find deep connection uh, with, uh, with the essence, with uh, the mystery. So uh, just any... First of all, do I have that right? And secondly, uh, is, are there any last thoughts or reflections before we go back to Koza? Yeah. No, that was a beautiful summary. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess I would just say, you know, a couple of parting thoughts um, or concluding thoughts are, um, you know, one is that we cannot heal something that we're not connected to, uh, and that includes our own bodies. So um, I know at least here in the West, in the American West, you know, we're, we're so mind-heavy that we don't often recognize how detached, how disconnected the mind and the body are. So really, we have to go into these places that feel uncomfortable, uh, feel unmanageable, you know, feel like the great mystery. Um, but really being able to connect with that um, with, uh, with comfort and with gratitude um, which really, uh, you know, it triggers this, uh, this great phrase that I, that I um, read when I was uh, going into my Christian mysticism. I don't remember who said it, um, but saying that we humans prefer manageable complexity over unmanageable simplicity. You know, manageable complexity over unmanageable simplicity. And, you know, it still rings true. I mean, I'm, I'm still really, uh, you know, a doctor, a human being, a citizen. I, I, um, we, we live, you know, in the relative dimension, things are very complex. Um, and there's beauty in that complexity, you know, and there's, uh, there's curiosity and there's, there's pleasure in that complexity as well. Um, but really, in terms of radical healing and deeper healing, you know, is, is, dropping into this place of unmanageable simplicity, uh, which for me as a doctor right now is, uh, that's where I find my challenge, is uh, how, I'm still operating in this, you know, in this dimension of complexity, and patients come to me with complex questions and wanting complex answers in some ways. Um, how do I relate to them and relate to myself and stay connected to this place of, um, of pure simplicity? Um, and really taking that into this current crisis, right? It's if we really look at the the planet as a single body um, that's going through, you know, a tremendous debilitating health condition. Um, asking the same questions on the macro scale, you know, how do we simplify? Um, how do we ask the questions of what truly matters and what what we can let go of? Um, what are we asking, uh, what are we being asked to, to transform, right, to let go, these attachments, these patterns, 
um, that keep us comfortable. That you know, that this is one piece that I learned uh, in my Qigong practice was that comfort. There's nothing wrong with comfort, and comfort is great, uh, but there's not a lot of energy moving. So if we're really seeking healing, we do have to go into the discomfort and move through that in order to get to the place of flow. So, um, uh, you know, and I, it, that uh, practice has been tremendously grounding for me uh, during this very, very dynamic time. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. Thank you, Cynthia Lee, MD, author of a remarkable new memoir, Brave New Medicine, A Doctor's Unconventional Path to Healing Her Autoimmune Illness, and most recently of the free ebook, How to Shield Yourself Against COVID-19, which, the, which you can find at CynthiaLeeMD.com. And now turning it over to Koso Hattori. Wonderful, beautiful conversation. Um, Cynthia, I feel like uh, I feel like we've just scratched the tip of an iceberg. You know, there's, just, there's so many, so many things we could go down just and explore for a long, long time. Um, and there's already a lot of uh, questions on the web forum. Um, I just want to encourage uh, uh, callers who are calling live; they can hit star six if they want to ask a question live. And then uh, you can also email us at askask at servicespace.org. Um, and then uh, we, can, we can also uh, type in the web form, those of you who are listening online. Um, I'm going to take the host prerogative and, and uh, ask the first question, Cynthia. And it's something that, um, you know, in, the, in, in trying, to, trying to explain the whole story and everything, you glossed over a bit, but um, it seems an important piece. And, uh, and it's interesting to me because my family's from Hawaii and uh, ancestors play a huge part in health, in uh, you know, uh, who we are and what we become. And you said you, you had to delve into some ancestral healing and you also explored epigenetics, which to me kind of is kind of scientific proof of ancestral trauma and ancestral healing and the importance of that connection. So I was wondering if you could just uh, flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, just to, um, to summarize or explain a little bit about what epigenetic science is, is epi means, you know, on top of, and genetics is the gene. So um, the, the model that uh, you know, what we inherit genetically uh, predetermines our, our health status is, uh, is really an outdated model. And so what we're, what we're recognizing is, yes, of course, we, we inherit, you know, a set of genes from each parent, um, but that the way in which the DNA, um, the genes are actually folded, um, has considerable uh, malleability. And this is where uh, what, we, what we do, what we think, what we eat, what we drink, you know, what we're breathing in terms of, you know, the quality of air um, it can, can really shift how the genes are turning on and off. Uh, so one analogy is, you know, it's like a piano. So we, we've inherited the set of keys, 
you know, that are hard and fixed, um, but that uh, the the way we live our lives and our thoughts um, are the fingers that play these keys. And so we can play a beautiful melody or we can, you know, play a lot of chords that aren't sounding so great together. And how do we shift um, towards one of more harmony uh, for ourselves and also uh, more in ways in which we're more in harmony with our environment. Um, so the, the science on epigenetics um, are, they largely come from animal studies where we can, you know, look at the, um, the inherited patterns more clearly. And then there are some populations, some observational studies uh, looking at, you know, Holocaust survivors or survivors or descendants from, you know, big famines. Um, so putting the two together, it looks like um, there's a, uh, the very strong potential that, you know, as you're saying, Kozo, that these patterns can get passed down uh, within human uh, generations and, uh, and more than just one. So not just, you know, what's happened to my parents. Um, and, uh, but the saving grace is also that, you know, when we learn to heal and we're, we're changing the way in which, uh, you know, we're relating to our bodies. We're changing the way in which we eat. We're changing the way, not just in what we eat, but how we eat. So if we're eating very mindfully, um, very likely that these patterns of folding and unfolding, turning on and off um, certain genes are, um, are going to happen. And so uh, you can think of it kind of just in terms of one is sort of a pro-inflammatory state, you know, which leads to chronic diseases. One is a, a sort of a rest and restore state, which leads uh, to healing. So, and again, I mean, these are extremes on the spectrum. Everybody's kind of in this spectrum that is very dynamic. So, um, you know, for me personally, um, there was, and a lot of actually my family history was lost. You know, it's just, um, it was lost through, uh, you know, war, through displacement, um, through uh, just erasing from memory, you know, because it was really traumatic. So, but there, what I know is that, you know, there were wars that, you know, my grandparents and then my parents as young kids were, uh, were fleeing. Um, and then displaced from, they, they, their families left China and um, uh, started from scratch in Taiwan. Um, you know, and then my parents had the, you know, the, the immigrant um, stress as well, right, relocating to a completely foreign country um, with nothing and, um, and starting from scratch there again. So um, there, and, and I remember as a kid too, like I knew that my my challenges, you know, were nothing compared to what my parents had endured and what my grandparents had endured. And that was another piece of just silencing whatever experience I was having um, and, uh, and suppressing it, you know, suppressing it. And I didn't realize at that time that what happens with suppression is it goes down into the body. So I was not conscious of it anymore and always had a very healthy uh, you know, as, a, as an adult and a young adult, a very um, integrated and healthy relationship with my family, you know, to sort of the best of my capacity. Um, but it had all sort of early on, you know, gotten very, very suppressed into my body. So it was learning, it was really through the mind-body piece where I would imagine having this very, very powerful effect on, on the genes. Um, 
where, you know, a lot of that just got loosened up. And so uh, I will say, you know, add to that, the, the saving grace about going into these deep embodied practices is that uh, I don't even have to go into the story. You know, I go in a way below the story and I let go of that story. It doesn't matter what the trauma was. It doesn't matter if it was illness-related, pregnancy-related, you know, related to Kurt's death, related to my parents. It's all, you know, kind of stored in the same way, in the same patterns. And when you release that pattern, you release and heal all of those, you know, at once. So, um, yeah, and then what we know also through uh, the science, that, you know, this is more on the level of quantum science, but that, you know, our genes, our DNA, all of our cells are vibrating at a very, very low frequency, very subtle. And so, you know, when I'm doing these energy practices, I'm kind of just imagining, like, that's probably what they're doing, right? All these ancient healing practices had vibrations and chants as part of their tradition. We've we've you know lost that largely in our culture um and in even in our western you know versions of religions and so um but through the chants and through the songs and through the vibrations is that actually what's happening too at the genetic level you know we're just we're literally shaking our dna free of some of these patterns that have not been healthy mm. beautiful uh, there's so, again, there's so much value to go into. <laughs> um, two things that I wanted to, or just one thing I wanted to point out that I find fascinating. And I know, like you said, you don't have to go into the story when you do the deep healing, but if I just look, <clears throat> kind of zoom out, it's interesting that um, your process of healing had to deal, go with going back to the source, um, going back to you know the the Christian by Bi, Bi, your Christian Bible going back to Qigong, which obviously is an ancient Chinese practice that right you know, um, was uh, a lot of that was um, cut off um, during the um, communist revolution. So it's interesting that you 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 know your process has been through the illness. You had to go back into who you were and, and, and those um, cultural codes that um, either were lost or were, um, were uh, not, not prioritized. So I find that Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one, that your comments um, just brought to mind two points. One is that, you know, I realized I, there was a while, you know, I was like just, you know, I'd been suffering for a long time and was also there was element of like, you know, why me, you know, the self-pity, and uh, which was very much a necessary part of my, you know, my evolution. I had to go through that. But, uh, you know, one thing I realized, and actually in understanding the way the body works, right, so you have this rest and restore phase uh, of the nervous system, and then you have this fight or flight, you know, uh, state of the nervous system. And what I realized, too, was like my parents, my ancestors, they, they were in survival mode, right? They're always in survival mode. And so the fact that I was on this healing journey, you know, felt like it was a privilege. Like I had the space to try to heal as opposed to always being in survival, fight or flight. Like I wasn't fleeing something, you know, that was imminent, um, which is, you know, interesting now, you know, being in this pandemic. I thought, well, my God, you know, my parents are remarkably um, relaxed about it. They're just like, oh, this is another thing. 
You know, it's another thing. You know, why is everyone so worked up, you know? And, and I thought, wow, like this is kind of what they're doing, you know? And so for me, this, this opening into healing was, uh, you know, again, this is something I came to much more in hindsight, but whoa, that was a, that was a privilege. The other notion is that in, you know, in so many different, um, traditions, but also, you know, when I, when I listen to, you know, the wisest people who've emerged from humanity. You know, there's this common phrase of just, you know, what are you looking for? Go, go home. Just go home. Mm. You know, and I never really understood what that meant. Like, home, like, what is that? You know, where is home? I've never felt at home anywhere, so where is home? And then I realized, yeah, like, just to your point, it's, it's, a, it's less about wandering and searching outside of ourselves. It's just about going back um, and, you know, and finding a sense of home from where we came from uh, in all, of, you know, in whatever that means to people. Um, and then ultimately, right, our, our, our home is our bodies and just learning mm. to be at home within ourselves. Wonderful. Just real quick, because we got a lot of questions. Um, mm-hmm. Just something we say in service space a lot is we're all just walking each other home, you know, and I think you you sharing the story, your story and you sharing, you know, um, all the things that you share is you're helping walk us home, you know, so I appreciate, I appreciate that and I thank Mm. you for that. That's beautiful. So so we had five questions come in during your last share, so a lot, (laughs) it must have (laughs) really touched the cord, Um, but I'm going to start back with... uh, earlier questions that came in earlier um one says um it's from casey she says i wanted to say thank you to cynthia and everyone who put effort to organize this call my question for cynthia is how to find a legitimate healer in slash intuitive person to work with in healing physically and emotionally and how did she develop her intuition and what kind of tips and guidelines can she give on someone developing their intuition i have cancer and want to use alternative healing methods to heal from it um, and then there's a number of qu- questions about uh, your Qigong teacher, um, and I'll, I'm just going to say that we'll share the link to um, the Qigong uh, resources in when we send out a thank you note for this. So all those questions. Um, but uh, yeah, um, it's interesting. Like, how do you develop the intuition to find an intuit- intuitive healer? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really that's that's a great circular question um yeah. and you know i would say like you know and i i had a lot of um again a lot of healers which i i do um write about in my book and the resources are all there their you know websites are there um and like you know one example is my acupuncture uh my acupuncturist who is you know a deep mystic uh, which i didn't know for years um, until I sort of came into it myself, um, but uh, but you know he was the fifth one that I tried. Um, I, you know I almost gave up. I was just like you know it, acupuncture just doesn't work for me. Um, like I'm going to all these gifted you know acupuncturists and it's just not working. So a lot of it again is resonance. You know it's not. And what I'm learning now through intuition is, um, and I learned this really you know by practicing on myself was. 
I, I would just sit with a particular person, you know, and and see, you know, do I get a yes or do I get a no? You know, do I get a yes or do I get a no? And it often has, it doesn't have anything to do with skill level. It's really about resonance. You know, are we a good fit for each other? Um, just like any other relationship. Uh, you know, you could look at, uh, you know, all these qualifications and someone could look great on paper, but, um, you know, are you guys um, uh, resonant? with each other. So um, some of it's going to be, you know, especially in the beginning, is going to be trial and error. It's really going to be trial and error. And then I would say also um, early on, um, you know, early, early on when I was, I did not consider myself uh, intuitive at all, um, what would happen was, was I would often wake up either in the middle of the night or, you know, first thing in the morning. And I think what happened was that was when my analytical mind was just the quietest. But, you know, I would, things would just come to me, you know, um, or I would just, oh, I just, I keep thinking about, uh, you know, Master Ming Tong. Uh, and, you know, I had actually, I had done his video practices for a few, uh, you know, for, I don't know, several months um, and didn't necessarily feel a connection with him. Um, so, but, you know, but I was sticking with it for a different reason for healing. Um, and then it was later. And I think it was because I had changed, you know, I had changed to the point where we were a much better fit for each other. And then I finally understood what it was that he was, what he was teaching. And so for a lot of my patients, um, for all of whom I now strongly recommend they have a daily practice. I say, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 15 or 20 minutes, but if you really want to work with me long term and you really want some deep healing, you know, you've got to start a practice. Like I've been doing it long enough to where I see the pa- the patients who do and those who don't. And it's, you know, um, like I, I don't want to waste time, you know, like I'm feeling a little bit like time is of the essence. <laughs> so, um, uh, but for a lot of them, I actually don't, I don't necessarily, you know, so it's not like one size fits all. It's not like, oh, um, Master Ming Tong, because he resonates with me and, you know, hundreds of other students that he's necessarily the right fit for you. So some of them I'll actually recommend, um, uh, you know, Qigong on YouTube that's free, that's a little bit more accessible, you know, it feels a little bit more like an exercise, um, but then you're learning to embody the practice. You are learning how to breathe. Um, it's, it's more accessible and then maybe like a stepping stone. So again, you know, like with my medical intuition teacher, Martine Blochio, um, she, you know, she can go pretty far out. And in the beginning, I just had so much resistance and, you know, I didn't know what to do with that. Uh, I couldn't connect quite, you know, to what it was that she was saying. So it's often helpful to have, um, you know, either sort of a stepping stone or just anyone that even seems a little bit pragmatic um, as far as what it is that you're looking for or, you know, finding someone who can translate. Um, And I would say there are more doctors that are open, uh, you know, in these ways than meets the eye. We've just really been trained to not talk about it. Um, you know, in our, in our ways of, of being with patients and everything has to be science-based and based in the randomized controlled trials and stuff like that. So um, oftentimes, you know, a question, an open-ended question can, uh, can be a really big opening as well. 
And also just putting the intention out there, you know, reaching out to your communities and asking people, just saying, hey, you know what, uh, I, I was just surprised, you know, when I started coming out of my, you know, intuition closet, <laughs> you know, and again, I, I talked to my acupuncturist who I had seen for years, um, and I said, you know, I've just, I've been studying, you know, medical intuition, whatever, and he's like, oh, you know, and then we just talk a t- completely different language. So a lot of people are not as open because it's been dangerous, you know, or, you know, in some way inappropriate um, within, you know, certain constructs. And that when we have, uh, when we sort of dare to put our foot out a little bit, that uh, the openings are, are there much more than I had ever realized. Mm, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, we have a question online, a, a, a live question, so I'm going to go to them. Amita? Hello? Hello. Hi. Um, hi, uh, Cynthia. Uh, this is Amita um, calling from uh, Nebraska, and I was really moved by your story and journey. And I guess um, my question uh, relates to um, how you approach this uh, with your patients. You know, so as a a fellow, I guess, Western uh, physician, um, I'm a pediatric cardiologist, and I see uh, many patients, families, kids that come in with chest pain and dysautonomic uh, symptoms, um, such as ones you uh, experience. And, you know, I intuit that, you know, that they're really uh, struggling with uh, many deeper issues and really need deep healing, but it's really difficult to approach that and broach that with those uh, patients and families and suggest a way that they can approach it through a different route. And uh, although I realize you're in functional medicine and people come to you already wanting to go a little different route, how do you get them to go to their edges and look to different approaches? Absolutely. That's a great question. And it is, it's challenging. Um, but, you know, I, I had also done some work in a uh, community clinic um, just here in Berkeley, uh, you know, with the standard 15, 20-minute appointment. And, um, but having, you know, having had my experience in my private practice where I had space to develop it, it was easier for me to just see a, what are ways in which I can apply this, you know, in a more standard environment. And so an example would be like, you know, somebody comes in for an asthma exacerbation and, you know, and I look through her chart and she's got, you know, you know every winter she comes in, needs more inhalers, needs a, you know, nebulizer treatment, and then um, sometimes she gets steroids, you know, sometimes she gets antibiotics. And so, you know, I would you know, it, wearing my conventional doctor's hat, right, still approach her the same way. Um, but oftentimes, again, it's kind of, um, I find that asking questions um, and being more invitational is much more, um, not only effective, but it's it's much more true, right? Like, because uh, we don't know actually what's going to be healing for them. Uh, what I, you know, have learned on my journey is not necessarily going to be something that other people are going to find healing. So, um, so I would, um, yeah, like I might ask that patient, um, you know, I see that you've come in, you know, multiple times or, you know, or you've had this chronic condition, you know, are you, are you interested at all in, you know, in other ways in which you might be able to decrease 
the, um, you know, the flares that you have. And sometimes, you know, they actually say no, you know, I mean, they don't, they use, rarely overtly say no, but they say, well, yeah, I don't have, I don't have space in my life, right? I just, my, I'm so maxed out, like just kind of, I just need whatever I can get right now to kind of tide me over, which is, you know, completely right their choice. As long as, I, I feel like the main thing is making them at least aware that there's other options. Um, and also, you know, sometimes what they are looking for is not something that I'm familiar with. Um, I get a lot of things with like people are asking me about hormone, bioidentical hormone treatments or Lyme, you know, treatment and um, diagnostics, and it's just not my area of expertise. But I I know enough about what's out there, and um, you know, potential places to refer them, and oftentimes just having an acknowledgement is uh, can be really healing. So, um, and I do find it's very tricky to bring up emotional or spiritual, um, you know, uh, contributors to chronic illness. Um, and particularly, I think, in the pediatric situation where parents already feel so much responsibility for children being unwell. Um, so it's really about sort of healing the whole family and, mm-hmm. um, and starting, again, just with the physical body, right? Like, um, what are some you know, if we talk about food, for example, I often say, well, what, you know, when you were young or, you know, what, what were the foods that were really comfort foods for you? Because that, you know, and then they'll talk about it and their eyes kind of light up. And it's like, because, you know, that might be a really comforting food and nourishing food for you and your child, for your whole family right now, you know, and connecting to that. So it let, becomes less prescriptive. Um, but, yeah, and that's where I think the integrative medicine pieces are, are really valuable is they're, again, they're tangible and they're practical and they, they sort of go in some ways below the story as well um, because it's the stories that are traumatic and, you know, can, can really exacerbate guilt. Um, but if we, if we go into, you know, just the, the basic body, you know, the basic food, the basic environment, nature, um, we can actually... Um, go below the story. Beautiful. I appreciate Thank that. Thank you. Thank you, Amita. Um, so uh, we have a number of questions about, th- this is how, how much I think value is here, Cynthia. We have three questions. Will this talk be available as a recording? I'd like to share it with my spouse and friends. Will this, uh, are we recording this talk um, I'd like to listen to it again. <laughs> so just to reassure everybody, we are recording this. We will make the recording available, and we will also transcribe this um, into a written form so you can get that. Um, and then uh, another question on um, online research for the Qigong that we can do with Shelter in Place. We will send that out with, um, with our thank you note. Um, we have a question from British Columbia from Diana, and she says, your conversation was very interesting and helpful. I'm a Caucasian 70-year-old woman diagnosed with AI disease, polymyalgia rheumatica, and have been on prednisone for seven years. I had a Chinese medicine doctor many years ago who, among other therapies, instructed me in Qigong. Since then, I've lost the practice, and I wonder if you could share your mentor's information so I can learn on it. So another question about 
Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll make sure to send that out. And then she follows up and says, I'm currently taking only 3 milligrams prednisone. Um, how does this impact what I do for my immune system? So that's a pretty specific question. I don't know if you, you have space for that, Cynthia. Right. I will answer that, but kind of more generally, um, yeah. is that uh, any, any, anything that we do, whether, you know, it's diet, um, you know, uh, changing our food, um, beginning an exercise program or, you know, or a, a more integrated practice like um, Qigong is, um, is foundational to, and it doesn't matter what medicines or what supplements that we're taking. It's going to uh, go deeper in terms of the body's capacity to heal. Now, there are medicines that are going to, um, uh, that they're supporting the body in a way that the body can't do it itself. So what, what often happens, and it happened for me too, is that as the body begins to heal, um, the need for medicines be, begins to go down. Um, and sometimes, you know, um, and as does supplements, right? Because all these things are basically, again, forms of energy. They're just providing energy so that our body can, you know, can function in a particular way. So as my body began to heal and I had more and more energy, you know, one medicine I'd been on for um, 14 years was uh, Synthroid with levothyroxine for my thyroid. And, um, you know, when I made significant diet changes, I had decreased it down to half, which already felt like a miracle to me. I, it was completely outside of what I thought was possible uh, and what I'd been taught and what I'd seen in patients. And then, um, you know, after the second crisis and I went much deeper into my healing was, uh, you know, I've, I've actually completely tapered off of it. So after 14 years. And wow. so, but again, it wasn't overnight and it's a stepwise uh, progression. So... You know, and that's something that, you know, people can work with their doctors on uh, or, uh, you know, like the, the very last bit of levothyroxine. I just woke up one day and, again, intuitively, I was about to take it first thing in the morning as I had for 14 years. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't think I need it anymore. And so, um, uh, you know, a lot of these things, when we look at sort of, you know, radical healings, we tend to look at, you know, this, this, this sort of the end product uh, you know, or the end result, um, but oftentimes it's a, you know, it's a um, a much longer, deeper journey um, than we than we see. Hmm. Wonderful. Um, we just got more questions in, but you know, we're, we're at uh, ten thirty, and be mindful of Cynthia's time and everybody else's time. Uh, um, if you if you want more information, we're going to share all Cynthia's. Um, her information for our web page and also um, a link to that free ebook that we, like Michael said we encourage everyone to download and share it's, it's such a wonderful um, gift of service Cynthia that you offer that freely um, and it's not a transaction it's more of just a flow um, so thank you for that and just I'll, I'll let Michael have the last comments but I, I just want to say that you know uh, while Cynthia like just just the the glimpse that I was able to have of your experience and you know going through a near death experience is one thing, but going through a near death experience twice and one for months on end that's some deep um, you know like they say wounded healer stuff, you know so 
thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for bringing all this forth, and thank you for for just increasing the flow to to help us find our home. And it's just an honor. Um, mm, and then thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll I'll let Michael have the final comments, and then we'll do um, end with another moment of silence. Thank you, Kozo, and what a great job facilitating the questions. And it's just such a joy to be part of the service space community, this extraordinary community that I've been connected with for a long time. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to have done this conversation with my friend and colleague, Cynthia Lee. Um, and I just think, um, as you said, Kozo, Cynthia, you have so much to offer the world. and. Um, um, and I'm just grateful um, that we are uh, doing this work together. And um, I just think in this time of so much fear that um, courage and the recognition that um, we can approach this uh, in a, uh, a courageous, joyful, peaceful place, uh, and that we can all make a difference, every single one of us, uh, so that the forces of light uh, become stronger and stronger and we come through this uh, to be the uh, community of life on Earth that we are intended to be. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. So we'll end with a moment of silence, and I um, encourage you to take Michael's words to heart and right now to start by extending you know wellness compassion kindness out in this moment of silence beyond the four walls of where you're at and hopefully um it'll it'll find where it needs to heal thank you you've been listening to a tns conversation with dr cynthia lee and host michael lerner thank you for listening to tns the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.